Well, this morning, it's interesting, the passage we're going to look at in our study of Acts as we continue through. You'll notice on your uh, notes in your worship folder, this is the 14th sermon in this series in Acts. And we come to chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and it just so happens that this passage that talks about the selection of men to take leadership in the church hits on Father's Day. So we're going to talk about that this morning. Last week, Pastor Steve talked to us about the fact that this was an unstoppable church, that there was an unstoppable force that was going on in this brand new church filled with brand new Christians, the beginnings of the New Testament church. This church had grown to over 20,000, 25,000 people in a matter of months, and that was just in Jerusalem. And they find themselves in a place where they need to expand leadership. And so we're going to talk about growing leadership for this unstoppable church. So if you have your outline or your Bible, you can turn to Acts 6. Let's do a few quick reminders, though, the context of where we're at at this point. The last verse in chapter 5 said this, They did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So, the gospel is being preached, it's being taught, they continue to do this. The very next verse, the first part of verse 1 in chapter 6 says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing. So the gospel's going out and the number of disciples is increasing. In other words, the gospel's being preached, people are hearing that and saying yes to that. And the number of disciples, those who are becoming part of the church, those who are giving their lives to Christ, becoming Christians, was increasing. God's church is impacting Jerusalem. The gospel is being taught and preached. And these really brand new Christ followers are deeply committed and engaged in ministry. We know this because more and more and more people are giving their lives to Christ in spite of persecution from outside the church, which we've looked at, and from disappointment, we'll call it, inside the church. We've looked at that too, that comes, that started coming when others in the church weren't all that they had claimed to be. The church of Jesus Christ is growing, expanding, and has been unstoppable in the face of attacks against it. Now let's look at Satan's strategy so far. First, there is persecution. Part of what Satan is trying to do is this persecution You can imagine the pressure to hide in the shadows when others in your church are being sent to prison for their faith. Consider what questions that would bring up in you personally. Am I willing to do that? Will I take a stand for Jesus and his gospel no matter what happens to me? Last week, in the passage at the end of chapter 5, we saw Peter and the other apostles called before the high council... And they were beaten and charged to not speak in the name of Jesus. Well, we saw how well that went, right? Because the end of that chapter said they didn't cease teaching and preaching Jesus. The level of hatred toward the church is picking up. And in all honesty, the persecution of this new church doesn't stop at this point. In the next two chapters of Acts... 
chapter 6 and then into chapter 7 and even into chapter 8, the intensity actually intensifies as persecution of Christians goes beyond the apostles to all those who name Jesus as their Savior. You see, what's happening is they see their influence dwindling. The Jewish leadership takes it up a notch and begins to kill those who hold fast to their belief in Jesus. But even with all this, it will do nothing but strengthen the resolve of the church to stand firm. Satan uses persecution, and he continues to push that evil strategy. But new challenges, he tries other tactics too, start to come from inside. You remember a couple weeks ago we looked at two characters, Ananias and Sapphira. And they exemplify what I'd call the tactic Satan uses of hypocrisy. He uses persecution and he uses hypocrisy. Get people to seem like they're true believers. Give the impression that they're fully committed to the cause of Christ. And in this case, even lie about their financial support. Well, this too, while having a deadly effect on the people who lied, only seems to increase the growth of the church through God's purification. He uses a purification process. The people start to realize this is real. This is real. I mean, when two people drop dead in the church service because they lied, you're thinking, I think God is real, and I'm going to give what I say I'm going to give, right? I'm going to be the type person that I say I am. I'm going to be a real follower of Jesus Christ. So Satan tries again, and it doesn't work. And part of what we're going to look at today is what I think is a time-tested method to break the spread of the gospel. So he's used persecution, hypocrisy, and today we're going to look a little bit of what he uses in this passage, division and discord. Not that any church has ever experienced division and discord, right? Remember, this church had grown from a handful to well over 20 to 25,000 people. And in the middle of that, discord erupts in an attempt to destroy what the Holy Spirit has brought into being. I've been a pastor for over 33 years, the majority of that here at New Life. And there have been points over the years of controversy and discord here. Some of this has come through what I'll call less than sterling leadership choices. That's happened at times, to be honest. And at other points, it has meant that our pastors and elders have had to take biblical stands that have been unpopular. Stands on abortion, sexual morality, even racial unity. Praise God, though, that for the most part, the enemy's efforts have been unsuccessful. And new life has regained focus and then continued to strengthen and build. Now, let me step away from this passage for just a moment. I want to inject a pastoral word here. It is easy, it is very easy to struggle with issues in any church. Why? Because it's made up of people. It's made up of humans. We each have expectations of people in our lives, don't we? Even those in our church. And the added expectation among Christians is that everyone in a specific local church, especially its leaders, will always, is that we will always conduct ourselves in a spirit-filled, loving, godly way. Now remember, I said that was the expectation. 
Certainly, this is our desires as believers, but it isn't always the case, is it? Often, controversy and disagreement and personality differences and perceived personal slights and decisions that we disagree with on and on affect our feelings and bring disappointment and even anger sometimes. The best thing you can do as a new lifer in any of these cases is to stay with it. Share your hurt. Talk about your concerns with those who are directly involved, whether it's leadership, a leadership decision, or even a personal clash in your small group. Jesus' intent for the church is that its people come together and work our issues and disagreements out together, right? Not to pack it up and go somewhere else. Remember, in Jerusalem, there was only one church. They had no other choice but to do it the right way. There are solutions to be found, always relationships to restore, and certainly a gospel to shine brightly again. The issues are never as important as the message, never as critical as the cause, and never bigger than our God. Let me show you maybe a simple way to view the church that might help you when you're struggling, okay? Just three words, cause, community, and corporation. Cause, community, and corporation. As a local church, we operate in these three different but connected ways. The gospel is our cause. We stand firm to proclaim it and battle against the enemy who does not want people to know Jesus. That is our cause. And we fight for that cause as a community. A family who can, at times, get crossways with one another but who for the most part deeply love and richly serve each other. We are a cause, but we're also a community, and in some senses we are a corporation. And I use that word because it begins with a C. Okay? We're a corporation. There is an organizational and structural piece needed in order to take the gospel to Columbus, Ohio, and to Los Anonos, Costa Rica, and Lyon, France, and Makono, Uganda, and to other parts of the world. We have to be organized. There has to be a structure of leadership, a structure financially, organizationally. That's part of the local church. We are a cause, a community, and a corporation. You say, how does that help if I'm struggling? Well, it's good to identify which of those three areas I'm struggling in. Am I struggling or am I disagreeing or kind of getting sideways with the cause? Or is it a community issue? Is it just some personality rub? Okay? Because frankly, some of you are hard to get along with. Okay? <laughs> some of you are going, you especially. <laughs> is it a community thing? See how those are different? Or is it a corporate thing? Is it, is it a matter of organization? Is the struggle here organization? Is the struggle here just being organized and planned in order to succeed? Make sense? Well, what we're going to look at today in chapter 6 is a little of all of these, but I would say 
it, get the solution, I'll give you a heads up, the solution's going to be corporate in nature. But they have to come together in community to come up with that solution. And they have to realize their cause in order to be serious about it. And the cause expands because they do this right. Okay? So, verse 1, the second half here, we see an ethnic controversy that arises. There's an ethnic controversy that arises. Second half of verse 1, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. All right, so who are all these people? Let's figure out who we got here. We have the Grecians, or what's often called the Hellenists, these Grecian Jews. These are Jews who were born outside of Israel, and they spoke Greek. Okay? The Hebraic Jews, also called the Aramaic Jews, they were Jews that were born in Israel, and they spoke Aramaic. So you have people within Israel born there, and you have people born outside Israel who had come there, and they have two different languages going on. I'd say that's problematic, right? Well, what comes up? Well, these Grecian Jews, so the Greek-speaking Jews, began to complain. The actual word would be better translated, they grumbled. Okay? They were grumbling at leadership because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Who were these widows? Well, they were among the most vulnerable members of society at the time. The Bible often singles widows out as in need of special care. Even James puts, says that real Christianity is defined by our actions toward widows. James 1.27, pure religion before God is this, to look after orphans and widows. So let's look a bit deeper here into this statement and see what's going on. It is pretty clear that the daily distribution complaint was not primarily about food because the complaint was against the Hebrews, the Hebraic Jews, and the conflict had become sectarian and almost tribal in nature. Racial and ethnic tensions were the undercurrent that was rocking the foundations of this new community of Christ. One Bible scholar puts it this way, These Greek widows were neither free to attend large gatherings in the temple, nor linguistically equipped to understand what these Aramaic leaders were even saying. They also probably struggled to understand the details of the ministry that was being offered to them. You see, it doesn't say that there was no ministry to them. It says that there was a problem with it. They were missing out on this ministry. These widows were in need of leaders who could teach them in Greek, in their own language. This helps to explain why only the Hellenistic widows and not also the Hebraic were missing out on the daily ministry. They simply could not understand what was going on. You can imagine, can you imagine going to a church where the majority were speaking in a language you didn't understand? Some of you, have, many of you really, have been on mission trips to Uganda or to France or to Costa Rica, and it is a challenge, isn't it? Because you are listening to sermons and singing songs and trying to communicate in a language that is not your first language, 
it might not be your 12th language, okay? It is very hard. Well, this is, this is right in the middle of where people are living. They're trying to become involved in this new church. They've come to Christ, but they can't understand what's going on. So that's the situation. Make sense? So this wasn't a matter of somebody was being mean to these widows, not giving them their ministry, which they desperately needed. But part, partly, if not mostly, it was this ethnic issue where they weren't speaking the same language. They had to come up with a solution. So, number two, the apostles challenged the congregation. Verse two. So the 12, 12 apostles, gathered all the disciples together. Who are all the disciples? Everybody in the church. Can you imagine this church business meeting? 20,000 plus people, kids and all. And they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. As Jesus builds his church, the leaders desire to stay faithful to their calling to preach the gospel and pray for the church. Yet here we see they resolve the issue by encouraging the community to look past the apostolic leadership and look for leaders who have the ability and the giftings to deal with the issue. What they're simply saying is, hey, we're not, this, this, we're not going to be good at this. <laughs> this, is, this is not our task. We need to find others who are going to be gifted at this. They're going to do a better job anyway, and it spreads the leadership. You know that happens in churches sometimes, right? Where something comes up and everybody goes, well, let the pastor deal with it. Well, the apostles here are saying, no, let's not do it that way. It is critical to stay aware of the changing needs of a congregation as it expands and grows. That's the purpose of pastoral leadership. Remember that the church, as we said, is partly corporate in nature, right? With that comes new realities that require church leaders to re-examine how the church is organized and structured. And we see that clearly here. It's time to adapt to new needs. Andy Stanley has said this, Leaders are not always the first to see the need for change, but they are the first to act. And that's what happens here. This complaint, this grumbling starts, this kind of uproar starts, and you can assume it starts getting to the place where it's becoming obvious. The apostles step in and said, okay, we're going to challenge the congregation here. So they come up with this plan for this ministry of mercy. So they gather the church, all the church, it comes together. I think there's ample evidence that the ministry given to these men wasn't just serving tables in the sense of actually serving food, but in the ad- administration of a huge effort that would take, it would take to oversee this effort. Remember, this church is well over 25,000 members, so how many widows would that have been? Even if it was a small portion... 10% of 25,000 is still a lot of people if it was 10%. So you're talking hundreds if not thousands of widows. Remember this too, that in chapter 5, 
we see church members selling their property and they're bringing the proceeds to the apostles. And the money then was distributed to poor people. So it's possible that these seven men were distributing money to the Hellenist widows. That this was a matter of saying, we'll find you a place to live. We will make sure that you are fed each day, that your needs are taken care of. All those things. That they're spending money, they're giving money to purchase food, they're serving food, they're, you know, getting every, all the people lined up in the fellowship hall so the widows could come in and get their lunch. It's interesting. The early church historian Eusebius writes that the seven men were chosen to do this, to administer the common fund. Okay? We like to say, well, this is all about they're just giving everybody their porridge for the day. No. They're administering the finances and money it took to take care of these widows. The Bible is very clear that mercy is to be the church's responsibility. The church is to be the first line of service to those who are most needy. In the 4th century, there was a leader named Julian the Apostate. Now, I don't know that anybody called him that to his face. But he sought to quench the church's rise to influence. And here's what he did. He created an imperial system of social welfare that would undo what the Christians were doing. And would outdo them. See what his goal was? He failed. In the 20th century, the Russian leader Stalin put a ban on what he called this charitable and cultural activities by the churches because the state cannot tolerate any challenge to its claim on the heartstrings of the Russian people. The church is responsible for missions of mercy. When our governments fail, it's not a matter of another government program. Maybe it's a matter of the church stepping up our game. Well, what happens here? So we're at the point the apostles say, pick seven men who are going to be able to take care of this. Men full of the Spirit and wisdom. And we're going to turn this responsibility over to them. And we're going to focus on prayer and the ministry of the Word. So number three, the solution is found in faithful leaders. Verse five, this proposal pleased the whole group. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, not the one in the Disney movie, this was another one, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So who are these seven men? Well, the word used here in the original language is diakonia, meaning that they were given a special ministry of service and or administration in which they were gifted. Diakonia, this was their specific ministry. They were also probably all Grecian. They were probably all Hellenists because these are all Greek names. Meaning that the complaining group was the solution to the problem, Right? See, it just makes sense. This way, the language would not be an issue. This would ensure clear understanding of the plan, 
They could even teach the scriptures to these Grecian widows without any problems. They would also, it says, need to be men of specific character. There was a specific character. Well, you know, what you think, well, what specific character is needed to oversee physical and spiritual needs? Well, the fact that it was hundreds, maybe thousands of widows is part of the answer. It says that they needed to be spirit-filled. Men of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit. They needed to have an empowering from the Spirit that was constantly sensitive to the specific needs of these sweet ladies who needed ministry, right? Remember, these would have been women with no family, few resources, and a desperate need. They needed to be cared for in a simple, spiritual way led by the Holy Spirit. So they chose men who were filled with the Holy Spirit. also says they chose men full of wisdom. These needed to be men who wisely, who had the wisdom and who wisely would give out funds and food and even shelter. Men who would need to have the ability to make a myriad of decisions in order to administrate this huge effort. See why they had to be men of a certain character? With certain abilities. At this point in this young church, everyone from the apostles, referred to in this passage not as the apostles, but the twelve, and this mercy ministry team are identified only by their ministry and not by their titles. The focus in the church should always be then and now, on ministry and not on recognition or title or even compensation. They were set apart, it says. They were commissioned with prayer and the laying on of hands. Now this didn't denote a special ordination into an office, especially in the early stage of this church. But it did recognize the importance of the ministry that these men were doing. With or without an official title, the seven were effective in this sacred ministry to the widows. And we'll see in a moment that that facilitated the spread of the Christian message and mission. So whether these seven men had a charitable ministry of administering funds or a more practical ministry of serving food, their care of the widows allowed the apostles to spend more time exercising their ministry of prayer and preaching. And success comes because every person in the church was fulfilling their ministry faithfully. That's the only way it works. And that message continues to today. The only way the local church can succeed and thrive and grow and the gospel of Jesus Christ can expand and reach new people is when each one of us faithfully fulfill our area of ministry. So the apostles lay hands on these faithful men and they set them apart for this ministry. This was an affirmation of that ministry and a commissioning to go forth, to act in the name of Jesus Christ in relieving the need and demonstrating mercy ministry. I think two principles emerge from this passage. One, organizational planning can prevent or alleviate spiritual breakdowns. See, this had turned into a spiritual thing, right? Because you assume that if these ladies weren't even understanding where to go, what they needed to do to receive food, 
They probably were also struggling to even, uh, even know what was going on when teaching was happening. And the organizational planning here prevents and alleviates spiritual breakdowns that could take place. And, number two, organizational structure really does matter for the health and ongoing work of the church. It's just like where you work. If there's good organization, what happens? It thrives. If there's poor organization, what happens? It falls apart. That's within the church, too. As we look to a third campus in 2018 in order to reach more people, our leaders are paying attention to these kinds of things. See, it takes a different kind of organization when you have one campus than it does when you have three campuses. And we're praying and asking Jesus to make us aware of any changes he would have us make in our leadership structure in order to better serve the entire growing church. Expansion and growth always requires change. So please be praying for our elders to hear how the Lord is leading. And then finally, number four, the word spreads and the unstoppable church grows. Verse seven, so the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The ministry of these seven was directly instrumental in causing the growth and spread of the Christian mission. This growth comes about not only because of their charitable practices, but because these Greek-speaking men made it possible for the gospel word to be preached more effectively to multiple ethnic groups. In the ESV translation of this same passage, it says, The word of God continued to increase. The Word of God continued to increase. More of the Word, right? More of the Word and what happens? The church grows and it expands and is more impactful. It seems here that this is a result, there is a, part of the result is a fresh outpouring of the Spirit through the ministry of gifted leaders. Church growth was not only made possible because the apostles were not derailed from their task of preaching and teaching and evangelism, but the choosing of spirit-filled and spirit-gifted leaders to do effective ministry enables the church to function as it should. Make sense? There is, second, there's a growth of the word. True and lasting growth comes because the word has impact. Our commitment to the word is essential for real Concrete, strong church growth. It might not be flashy, but it is true. It might be slower, but it is stronger. Third, the church grew in part because these people, you can imagine the people of Jerusalem, they see a genuineness of Christian love in this place. You can imagine this spread. I mean, these were widows, right? So word got out. It got out that the church is, has figured this out. Wow, you know what happened? Our leaders came and said, let's, let's pick these men and let's... You know who they chose? They chose people who could communicate with us in our own language. I mean, you can imagine word gets out. And the desire of Jesus that he expresses in John 13, 35, 
is fulfilled. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you, what? Love one another. There was also an increased, there were increased numbers. There was also increased influence. Even among the leadership of the Jewish Old Covenant, priests were coming to Christ. Now that is a sign of God's extraordinary blessing on this church and its ministry. Even those who were involved in the Old Covenant sacrificial system are beginning to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. That is amazing. So that's chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. But I want to take these last just few moments. And I want to do a little, uh, we'll call it closed circuit for new life, okay? What's this mean to us? A few things I'd like to mention in addition to what has been said already. Number one, problems, no matter how awkward to bring up, should be dealt with, not ignored. Are ignored problem, do ignored problems ever get better? Just practically, I should see heads shaking some direction. Do ignored problems get better? No. Number two, be a person who takes hold of your responsibility to care for those who are most needy, including the needy within the church. Don't wait for a program. Just take on the needs of someone else in our church. Help how you can. Impact a life. Number three, your title or position, my title or position, is less important than our character and our ministry. Remember, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Number four, The church flourishes when each of us fills and fulfills our place of ministry. In your worship folder this morning, there's a little box with the top five needs for ministry right now in our church. The top five. Not say that's all, but the top five. I'll bet there is enough, there are enough people in this room to to fill these spots. To you look at that and you say, I could do that, and I will willingly do that. The church flourishes when each of us fills and fulfills our place in ministry. Wouldn't it be great to not have that box in the worship floor? Everything's just taken care of, you know? How many people in your church, Pastor Brian, are involved in ministry? Everybody. Everybody. You don't have anybody that's just kind of coming? Nope. That's like a pastor dream, right? Number five, each of us should strive to be people of faith who are fully controlled by the Holy Spirit. We should strive for that. Each of us should strive to have the character of the men who were chosen to administer this ministry. And now since it's Father's Day weekend, I think it's appropriate to take Just a minute and talk to men for a moment. So we're going to do a quick closed circuit to just men. So ladies, ignore this. Don't write it all down and then tell your husband about it later. Like, why aren't you? Anyway, okay? Number one, be men of godly character. 
Be men of godly character. Ask the Holy Spirit to take full control and then obey. Let's be men of godly character. When the people of the church come to us and say, we need you to take on this ministry, we should be able to say yes because we're men of godly character. How many men in our church should be able and ready and willing to take on ministry like this? Every one of them. Because we're all striving to be men of godly character. Number two, be men of true faith. Step out and serve. It'll stretch your faith. It will stretch your faith. You know, you know, I want to talk to these seven guys when I get to heaven. I'll bet their faith was stretched by these ladies. Right? They'll probably go, come over, come over here, let me tell you about Beatrice. Okay? Let's be men of true faith. Third, let's be men of wisdom. Men of wisdom. And how does that happen? Well, focus on the key and core disciplines of the word and prayer. We need to be men of the word and prayer who have wisdom. One writer has said, Live as God would have you to live, and others will be inspired to do the same. You want a legacy, men? Then let's be men of the word and men of prayer. Number four, be men of grace. You say, where'd you get that that's not in the passage? It's in verse 8. I'm cheating. Be men of grace. Let's be grace givers. Love and serve others unconditionally. There is no reason why the people in our lives should not feel loved unconditionally. That they should not feel like they are being served unconditionally by a father, a husband, or a mentor, or a leader full of grace. And then finally, number five, let's be men of power. This is the Spirit's power, not our own. It's been said that leaders live out who they are on the inside. Let's be men of power. Every one of us here, every Christ follower should desire the kind of characteristics that these seven servant leaders displayed. I was reading a book this past week and it said this, Our potential is one thing, what we decide to do with it is another. Let's have this kind of character in your life. Bill Hybels, who's the leader of the Leadership Summit that's coming up in August, said this, You can live and lead small. You can live and lead safe. You can live and lead selfishly. Or you can pursue a grander vision. I believe that grander visions change the church and cause it to be unstoppable. Because as people of this church, we take on leadership roles that push the church forward as we are men and women of character who are full of the Spirit and wisdom and grace and power. Men and women of faith. Men and women of the word. Father, we thank you for the, your word that constantly challenges us. Father, as we've read this passage today, 
I pray that each of us would allow you to uh, point out things in our lives that would allow us to be more impactful for the kingdom of Christ. God, use us. God, build this church for your glory through us. In Christ's name, amen.